Welcome to this episode of our podcast, everyone. Today we have interviewed Larry Cameron, who is Keegan's in my personal superhero because he fights bad guys on the internet. Now, in this episode, it was brushed to light many of the crimes that take place on the internet, as well as the process that is followed to mitigate those crimes, especially regarding human trafficking and money laundering. Larry is the person that finds these illicit activities that take place on the internet uh, and finds the cryptocurrency addresses that are associated with it with them to bring two and two together to then find um, the person responsible for these crimes. He walked us through the process of what that looks like and we learned a lot from him. It was also a very eye-opening episode for us or interview for us because a lot of um, the activities that take place in our surrounding that we wouldn't even know about or think to uh, be aware of were brought to light and we 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 just enjoyed talking to him and we were very grateful that he made us aware and made our audience aware of um, what goes on in our world and the world of the internet so you will enjoy this episode you will take away a lot from it and let's begin The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palwe, and the guests interviewed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are solely their own. The content discussed are intended to be for informational purposes only. Larry. Yep. Welcome to the show. Today, we have someone that Keegan and I really look to as our superhero because, Larry, the first time you told us the things that you do... To, we, when you left our place, we were like, oh my gosh, Larry is like the, the one who gets the bad guys on the dark web and it's and no one knows about it. So we wanted to bring you in on the show to tell our audience and, you know, the world how you are a superhero. And sorry, we, we are going to have you uh, be an unmasked superhero at this point. Glad to be here. Yeah. So Larry Cameron. You just before we started, I, I tried to get all of the acronyms right uh, for for where you work. So why don't you tell our audience your where you work and your position? So I'm uh, currently the Chief Information Security Officer at the Anti-Human Trafficking Intelligence Initiative. I'm also an OSINT Open Source Intelligence Investigator for the National Child Protection Task Force. That's amazing. So. Let's let's dig into what you actually do for both of those positions, uh, and let's start with OSINT. Actually, that's the Open Source International. What was the other? The Open end? Source Intelligence. Intelligence. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. And what do you what do you do for that role? So we do investigations into uh, missing persons or exploited children. Uh, we do quite a bit of investigation. Uh, for law enforcement, just because law enforcement doesn't have the necessary tools in order to perform these investigations. And sometimes the software in order to perform these investigations can be 30,000, 60,000, or even more per year per license. Right. And law enforcement doesn't exactly have the budget or the, the expertise to, to implement that in-house. Correct. Let alone all the different law enforcement agencies that are out there. I think the last time that we were speaking, you uh, you were telling us that you have this hackathon of sorts where you have 200 missing people and you get a group of 
individuals who are interested in helping fight uh, human trafficking and they just use open source information to to go and find these people. Is that can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh Trace Labs, they're uh they're involved heavily with the National Child Protection Task Force, but uh there's about five or so investigations, uh sometimes around seven, but uh we have thousands of hackers or investigators, law enforcement, OSINT specialists that'll actually uh, perform investigations and look for intelligence about these missing people. And we would do this through, you know, combing Google or their social media profiles, uncovering their phone and email addresses and finding intelligence that may have been missed. Right. The first time around. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh, I feel like um if i was to really boil it down i see you wear two hats one of them is gathering data intelligence to find missing persons the other one is looking at blockchain forensics to find where the money is at uh, and also to help find the missing persons or um whatever other uh, thing that you're looking for on the internet so can we talk a little bit more about the blockchain forensic side of things? How What led you to get into that field first off? Uh, so mainly it was for uh, to implement compliance and anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing programs for crypto exchanges. And uh, just so happens with uh, ATII or Anti-Human Trafficking Intelligence Initiative, we have a lot of partners where we can source data and we can perform investigations on that data that's currently uh, attributed in these blockchain forensics applications. So we would, uh, you know, get this data, would trace the funds, would create different cases. Uh, once we track the funds to an exchange, then we work with our law enforcement partners to submit subpoenas in order to gather their KYC data, which is know your, know your clients, say, it can contain anything from their name, phone number, email, uh, them holding a, a picture, selfie of their ID card. Uh, we can get their IP address. We can get all their transactions and associated addresses and basically uh, solve a case. Right. Based on that. And um, do you find that, well, actually, I want to take this back a little bit and before crypto exchanges even existed or even before cryptocurrency was a thing how did you use tracing money or like what did you use to trace the money to add intelligence to find what you were looking for so mainly we would use uh blockchain explorers uh we would get uh, before crypto oh before crypto yeah. so it's similar where banks uh they have uh, anti-money laundering compliance programs, but uh, you see banks are more private, whereas blockchain is a public ledger. So, you know, you would have to have, there's a Bank Secrecy Act or uh, other, other compliance things that prevent you from sharing information. Uh, so we, you know, basically each one of your, addresses could be a bank uh, or an account right. so it's it's quite a bit different it's a lot more difficult there's fincen in the u.s there's fintrack in the canada but there's uh, a lot of acronyms <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so financial crimes enforcement network so 
they would uh, perform their investigations. So banks, when they find suspicious activity, they file what they call a suspicious activity report. Now, this can go to FinCEN in the U.S., or it can go to law enforcement as well. But then they would be responsible for investigating. So they'd have to submit subpoenas in order to gather information and then analyze the transactions. It's a lot more, a lot more process in it. Is there, um, well, like, you know, again, pre-crypto banks are compliant with the uh, agencies that are out to get the bad guys on the dark web, correct? Majority of them. Majority, <laughs> majority <laughs> of them. Well, I'm wondering, is it, uh, how much harder was it uh, to get information from banks, uh, even if they were compliant? Because we'll get to the blockchain and the public part of the blockchain later, but uh, in our We've talked about, Keegan and I have talked about this before, where banks like to keep data and information siloed, at least from public and startups and companies. But with respect to uh, the line of work that you're in, do they have to? Is there, do they have a legal obligation to share information of their clients with you for one? And for two, like how much difficulty have you faced from getting information like this from the bank because of their siloed information structure? Yeah, so normally, uh, you know, whether it's a bank or it's a crypto, they would submit the information to law enforcement. They wouldn't really release a test directly. Uh, it's up to law enforcement in order to release that information to us in order to assist with the investigation. Okay, so you never really talk to the bank directly. Nope. They, uh, we've done some proof of concepts with them where they would uh, basically say, yes, your data helped us dismantle a multi-million dollar ring <laughs> consisting of 14 massage parlors but you know they wouldn't give us any other identifying information and we're lucky if we hear back from banks just because it's all bank secrecy act what is the bank secrecy act i know nothing about that so it's where you can't disclose uh, uh information about your customers to anybody other than law enforcement uh, without a warrant or subpoena. And then you're you're technically not part of law enforcement. Correct. But when you are part of law enforcement, because like sometimes you do help law enforcement with, with their investigations, then you can get information from banks through like outside through law of law enforcement. Yeah. yeah. Right. So uh, the law enforcement would have to submit the subpoena uh, in order to get the details. And it's up to them whether they want to share it with us. It's so, up to the banks? No, it's up the to the law enforcement bank. once they gotcha. receive it. Yeah, it, it's quite difficult to get information out of anybody. But uh, I mean, we work with federal agencies and they come to us with information. It could be, you know, a name, phone number, email, social media profile, social security number, birth dates, uh, transactions. Uh, that's mainly what we would get from federal agencies. Uh, and this is mainly to get to um, human trafficking like yeah and what else so either human trafficking or any child exploitation related cases and those are the two main cases yeah okay well do you find that um the amount of privacy and secrecy that the banks maintain is valid to uh, some degree or another like this is just your opinion yeah i'd say it's valid as for a privacy aspect i mean what would happen if a bank started divulging their customer information? Whereas if they released a law enforcement, then, you know, that's 
you know, if they're asking for that information, then there's a reason. There's a current investigation into it. But do they, so I'm wondering, this is again pre-crypto, and I'm wondering, is it possible to disclose information that isn't identifiable to a person's identity, but it gives you what you need with respect to their transactions? Yeah, to do your job. Yeah, yeah like question. is that? Yeah, they won't. Uh, but is, not will financial that be useful institutions. though? Yeah, it'd be very useful. And we've done some, you know, tests with uh, running data through other bulk systems where they would give us a yes or no. So we can say, do you got a hit on this? And they'll say yes. But that's all the information they give. If I want to get that data, then I have to work with law enforcement to submit the subpoena in order to get that information. How much does that delay you in getting what you need in order to do what you need? Be a day, could be three months. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it has been fast before. Oh, yeah, it has been really fast because we know the people who are receiving the subpoenas and we let them know, hey, you're you're going to receive this from law enforcement. Uh, it's part of this investigation and they're okay with that. They're usually waiting for it. Okay. So, well, you know, post-crypto or presently, how much of your work is related to working on public blockchains as opposed to direct de dealing with banks? Uh, so it's easy to do public blockchains. Uh, Bitcoin, I mean, we can track it from what would be in comparison bank to bank to bank, and I can view all their customers. Uh, let's say if it's a crypto exchange like Binance or Coinbase, Gemini, we can see those cold wallets. So theoretically, we could follow all of their customers pretty pretty seamlessly. Now, if you tried to get that done with a bank, that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, you get a subpoena for maybe a user or two, a customer or two, but for, you know, crypto exchanges, you have that attribution, you know, the exchange's wallets, and you can kind of go from there. And they have to be compliant with you, correct? Like they have to be uh, AML compliant and KYC compliant. The so exchanges do. The exchanges, yeah. yeah. So when you need something from them, is it fairly easier to get information related to a, a transaction that takes place on the blockchain? Well, we can get all the information related to the transaction. It's just the KYC data that we need. And uh, uh, we currently, we have uh, anti-human trafficking crypto consortium. Right. Where, you know, we have a whole bunch of leading exchanges, a lot of the blockchain forensics firms. Uh, if I report something to them, what they'll do, they could close the account. Right. So, but if I get law enforcement involved and they say whether to keep the account open or closed, they submit the subpoena, uh, the exchange will share that with law enforcement and law enforcement could share with us. We're helping them with the investigation. Right on. Wow. This is such awesome information. I kind of want to dial it back or dial it down really just for a second for all of um, our audience that is not aware of all of these acronyms <laughs> that we're, uh, we're talking about. And let's start super simple, okay? We asked you a question way earlier. We loved your answer. We actually have been telling people about this. It's when people ask you, Bitcoin is used for money laundering and all sorts of nefarious purposes. What do you do about that? And you said you gave us a really awesome answer. So what is your answer when people ask you, well, Bitcoin's used for money laundering? 
look at cash in fiat. So is that. I this mean, is true. You, you can you can launder money with gift cards. Uh, you can launder money with pretty much everything. Um, PayPal. I mean, it doesn't matter what you use. We should shut down PayPal then. <laughs> <laughs> and we should get rid yeah. of cash. Yeah, absolutely. Why yeah. do we have cash? Yeah, and I mean, even more so cash is used to launder. I mean, when you're buying drugs, what do you use cash? You know, you don't want to send an EMT, say, hey, this is for the whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, but the criticism that um, uninformed people use specifically for Bitcoin, just like this, the stamp and the label that Bitcoin gets is, oh, it's the one that's the money that's used for money laundering. And uh, what's that other thing? Uh, Something with for trafficking guns. What's yeah, it called? Yeah, buying guns and, and, and drugs on the internet. And, there was yeah. another word that was used, but anyway. In the dark web. It. Yeah. Drugs, weapons, uh, and human trafficking. It's all a cycle hit of terrorism. Men. Right. Yeah, you can get hitmen. You can get cards. Passports. Mixers, fake passports. But these PayPal are, accounts. Well, like all of these are just uh, things or services that can be, that are offered and are being bought by people all around the world. But if Bitcoin is used as the money to facilitate that transaction, I mean, sure, it's used as a money, but from your perspective, Larry, is it a good thing that Bitcoin is being used as opposed to, as opposed to cash? Like, what's your take Yeah, there? because it's on a public ledger. You can trace a public ledger. And once you have the attribution or they try to cash out and go to an exchange, uh, you got them. It's basically all the evidence there uh, that's immutable and can't be modified. There we go. <laughs> that case is, closed. Case closed. Yeah. Like that's. Oh my gosh, this is you know a segment of the podcast that I kind of want to cut mm. and like play to whoever says anything about Bitcoin being used as the money for X Y Z reasons because. Mm -hmm. money is used for xyz reasons it's not yeah. bitcoin specifically and just think if uh you know five years later you finally get another hint on that blockchain or attribution i mean boom that just blew your case out with cash who knows how much that cash changes hands right but i mean if you had an investigation five years ago and then you got an alert someone sent from that address to an exchange you're like, I remember that case. Oh, let's get a subpoena submitted. Oh, look, I know their identity. Oh, look at that. Right. Knock, knock, knock. SWAT team boot the door down. Bob's your uncle. Yeah. Well, I remember, what did I see? There was an image of um, uh, like a terrorist group somewhere in the East. I won't, don't the know Middle what location. East. I don't want to say Middle East because I don't remember if it was the Middle well, East. I think or Larry like showed us the photo, Pakistan. and it's uh, a group of gentlemen standing there um, with with a sign that just I think it was their QR code, the Bitcoin symbol. Yeah, donate Bitcoin here. Yeah, and then just a long string of characters and numbers that represents their Bitcoin address. Yeah. Well, it's that same image that I've also seen as being used against Bitcoin, right? Like right. in news media, news and media, they say, well, look at this. Terrorists are using Bitcoin to fund their whatever they're funding, being funded for. But in your case, that is fantastic, isn't it, Larry? Yeah, it's easy for the investigation and, uh, you know, kind of tracing the funds, figuring out who they are. Uh, there's also sanctions you're transacting with a sanctioned entity 
What's so, a sanctioned entity? So where the government puts sanctions on, let's say, terrorists. So, uh, you know, they're buying guns with this money. They know it is what they're doing. Then they try to spend the money somewhere else or cash out on an exchange. That exchange is not allowed to transact with that Bitcoin address because it's sanctioned. Oh, Interesting. I didn't know that. Right. So, Ruga, we were talking about censorship the other day and censorship occurring at the, the mining pool level or right. at the, the individual miners level. And that's that's kind of a that's a different discussion. But censorship can also occur at the exchange level, which is more so what Larry's mm. talking about. Right. Yeah, because you, you same with banks. You can't uh, transact with terrorists. Right. If you do, then your your bank will get fined 100 million or 200 million dollars. And that's just essentially for, what these crypto exchanges are. Yeah. They're crypto banks. Yeah. Right. And it, it's just, it's newer with uh, crypto. So, I mean, there's not too many crypto exchanges in the U.S. that even be non-compliant that wouldn't comply by all these different things. Like you have watch lists, you have negative news, you have court cases. What's negative news? Uh, so negative news, let's say if you had a news release about you being arrested or involved in fraud or uh, anything like that. And then you have your, again, your sanctions and you have other data sets. Like there's probably about a dozen different data sets. Uh, there's corporate ownership, like corporate beneficial ownership. There's corporations, there's politically exposed persons. Uh, there's Panama Papers and leaks. So you have all these different data sets that you have to scrub all your customers against. And if you don't and you miss it, and uh, you can get fined. And it's right. not only that, it's reputational damage. Right. Like Binance doesn't do this, and therefore maybe we shouldn't use Binance for our business or that, that kind of thing. Yeah, it comes out in the news. I mean, a lot of banks, they, they get hit reputationally. People will stop using them. Right. Yeah. They get all these fines. So isn't regulation a good thing for the crypto industry? It's good. There's not going to be any trust in blockchain without regulation. I like how you said that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, that, and that's, uh, that's a fact. I mean, you see how it's going. Some of these uh, people taking off, exchanges getting hacked, or you know, just the owners shutting down the exchange, taking everyone's funds and leaving. Um, you know, there's no trust in blockchain. Uh, but if you have compliance and everything, then that would promote the trust. So, well, do you... That's also when institutional investors will come in. Well, once there's trust. Aren't we seeing institutional investment in, in Bitcoin at least? We are, well, I guess. We are seeing institutional are seeing investment it, yeah. in Bitcoin. And how is that impacting your work? Or is it making it easier? Is it... Just, I guess impacting it's it not even really involved okay. I mean if they're compliant if they're institutional then they're just buying it for a quick buck you know what I mean right uh, but it, it's the criminals that use it in order to kind of some of them try to well subvert the actual financial institutions so they would try to transact or get around these restrictions is that because but, they don't know any better? Yeah, a lot of them don't know. I mean, a lot of this, you know, everyone thinks Bitcoin's anonymous, but it's not. Right, it's pseudo-anonymous. Right. Yeah. Nifty. Well, it, well, 
But that's, uh, even if it is pseudonymous, doesn't mean that people can't get a Bitcoin address, for example. So like the mm -hmm. properties of Bitcoin being accessible to anybody that has the internet to receive money, it, they still apply. And like, as we get more and more regulation, I'm really happy that it makes your job in some part easier and increases trust, like you said, for institutional investment. The other part that I think is slightly risky is um, how, how, like, can can it be overregulated? Do you see the space being overregulated? I, I can kind of like lend an answer while Larry's thinking yeah. there. Uh, like the overregulate, I think there's a limit to how much regulation can occur just to, due to the like the inherent censorship resistant nature of, of Bitcoin, right? Because I, I can always, I mean, there's there's coins that are uh, tainted and there's coins that are not tainted. Tainted coins would be coins that have been at Black one point in time, yeah, yeah. Uh, attributed to nefarious activity. And then there's coins that were just mined. And if I've got mm -hmm. a hold of those coins and there's, there's, they never hit an exchange, then we can never tie an identity to those coins necessarily. Right, right. so you can send you know, back to India to your parents, send them some Bitcoin and they just hold it in a wallet and, you know, nothing's really tied to them. They could send it to other people who can then cash in. But if your parents were to buy a whole bunch of guns and drugs and then send it to their family, then it'd be tainted right. with that activity. So it wouldn't be them that would feel it. It would be the people who they sent to. I think that the overregulation that would occur, if it ever is to occur, would happen at the, at the nexus points. And, and what I mean by that is the centralized entities within the crypto industry and not the decentralized network of Bitcoin itself, because I think it's that in itself is resistant yeah. to regulation, whereas you can still regulate the access points into it. Um, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not in the future, uh, if, if people, if we ever reach a stage where people are not using exchanges as much, let's just say the Lightning Network takes off, and that's a more anonymous form of, of using and transacting with Bitcoin. Would that make your job any more difficult? Like how much do you know about attributing real world data and real world identities to, uh, to addresses and channels on the Lightning Network? So that's when you rely on uh, abuse databases and stuff like that to get that attribution. If you're not going to get the identity, then you can still track who they're transacting with. But it makes it a lot more difficult when those centralized entities are out of the picture. Right. Decentralized, I mean, you can, you know, trade with people all day. But unless you're able to attribute that to, you know, dark web or whatever goes on in the dark web, then it's not really going to go anywhere. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and with respect to the Lightning Network, do you find that there's more uh, like channel identifiers and Lightning addresses that are popping up in your work? And like, do you know how to identify those and work with those currently or is that still like a an area that's underdeveloped no nope, any bitcoin address um you know it's attribution straight on that address right but lightning network channels are a little bit different and uh, they don't have the same kind of address structure so so i'm wondering if that like when you're scanning the dark web and you described this, this to us the other day where you said uh Something along the lines of like, you know, how Google scans the, the regular internet. Well, we've got some programs that scan the dark net, looks for Bitcoin addresses, throws them into a database and we cross-reference that with the, yeah. the data we get from exchanges. Um, I'm wondering, do you ever pick up lightning channel addresses uh, and what do you do with those addresses? Um, so explain the difference in between them. 
in the channels. I so uh, as far as I understand it, the uh, I don't know actually a whole lot about Lightning, uh, but it's run through Tor. So maybe we can get into a partial discussion about Tor, and this might uh, in like answer a, a couple of the questions that we have about Lightning simultaneously. So if I'm like Lightning is uh, it works the same way as the Onion router. Um, whereas like, okay, I'm sending a transaction from me to Mruga, but I might need to send it through you, but you don't have the ability to unlock the transaction, only the destination does Mruga. So if that's kind of how lightning addresses work, that's not how Bitcoin works, that's how, that's how mm -hmm. lightning addresses work. And, and I'm wondering if you can speak to a bit about Tor and how that complicates your job, and maybe that'll answer some questions. So our dark web intelligence tool that we created, um, We'll scrape all of the dark websites, so tens of thousands. Uh, we will pull out these artifacts like email addresses or uh, crypto addresses. I mean, just because it's using the Onion router, I'm investigating the destination site. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm getting all my artifacts. So I may not know the IP address of it, but... You know, what if I scrape an SSH key, for instance? I mean, you know, I'm looking at that SSH key over the dark web, but what if I pivot and look it up via Shodan, and then I find the IP address of that server? You know, it's... I'm just pivoting. So you're building cases. I heard you mention that earlier. You're, yeah. you're, you're like, okay, I've scanned this. I've got that minute piece of information. Mm -hmm. You might collect enough information about that particular case over the course of uh, months, uh, weeks, yeah. days, weeks, months, or maybe even years. And eventually you'll have enough information to launch a case. And you'll also be gathering information in multiple spots and not know that they're related. And later you'll be able to connect one piece yeah. in this silo to this, this piece over that's here. That's why we do link analysis. Right, so, gotcha. You know, it's, uh, we we also check out the scripts that are in the web pages. Uh, so welcome to video. Uh, that was IRS figured out uh, an IP address that led back to the server, which then law enforcement was able to get the server in China and get all the different crypto addresses. And then they did all the forensics. And that's how they busted over 300 people. Right, so, so tell people about Welcome To, because we didn't know about it when, when you first told us about it. So it was uh, the world's largest child exploitation site, so we child porn, it would, uh, and people would have to upload videos or new content in order to get credits in order to download other content. So it was, uh, you know, it came came down uh, probably a few years ago, but there was large investigation into it. But there's tons of these dark websites. So you have to kind of get crafty sometimes. Uh, it, it's just basically trying to find out where the actual location of the server is. And sometimes they make mistake. Oh, they, you know, put an IP address in the code that leads back to their server. Well, we're scraping all these links out into our dark web intelligence tool as well. So I can export all of them and there'll be like list of thousands of IPs. I mean, maybe it leads back to a clue, but you know, using the SSH method where I can 
get the SSH key on the dark web and then I pivot on the internet and find out where is that SSH key used, you know, it's kind of just pivoting and right. So like, getting crafty. Just to break that down for our listeners, so like Mike's Pet Food dot com might be like a, a shop in florida in miami florida for example and mike's pet food that whoever's deployed that website used an ssh key to do so yeah. um and that you can find ssh keys on the internet that's one of the things that you scrape for while looking on the dark web and if you detect that ssh key involved in nefarious activity then you need to just go look at mike's pet food.com yeah and who's the owner of mike's pet food well it's mike yeah he lives at 823 exactly yeah and then you can get the ip address uh law enforcement will submit the, the submit the subpoena uh get the subscriber info and boot down the door right on so it's just you have to get a little crafty when you're working with the dark web that's why we created this dark web intelligence tool. Uh, we even have a Multigo Transform, if you're familiar with Multigo. We're not. I don't think our listeners are either. <laughs> oh, you'll have to check it out sometime. Yeah. But it what allows you... It? You can... It's kind of like a graphing and analysis tool where you can uh, get one IP like Shodan or another one that does DNS, another one that does IP addresses, another one that does phones. And you can kind of just perform different actions on these attributes. Like if it's an email address, I'll right click and there'll be a big menu there where you can say, look up email address or, you know, run this email address through this other API and you can keep on finding the information and graph it out. So it's major open source intelligence, threat intelligence tool. But you get to graph it out, so it's kind of pretty. <laughs> yeah, you showed us some images from that. And like just one example, uh, earlier you said that if you have a Bitcoin address that you know is a shop, for example, then you can actually see all the addresses that are its customers because, well, those are the addresses that are sending to that address. And yeah. you can see, okay, well, this address or the person behind yeah. this address is obviously a seller of something. And then you can go out and get all the secondary information on all the addresses. And, and what that looks like is a big yep. spider web, eventually. Yep. Exactly. It's a big spider web. So you can run a, a Bitcoin address through, say, well, what's it attributed to? Is it an exchange? Is it something else? So if it's an exchange, then you don't really want to see, you know, the cold wallet, but you want to see, well, who was sent to that single wallet because that's tied to a user. So you can see all those transactions. Uh, you can run it through again uh, just to get their attributions, but it's a lot, of, a lot of graphing. You'd have to see it to believe it. No, I, I believe it. I, I'm actually just imagining it and trying to spin a story around it because getting caught in that spider's web is essentially what happens to bad actors on the internet because yeah. you can't really hide without leaving a trace. <laughs> right, the digital trails. Exactly. And you mentioned Trace Labs before. There's also Cypher Trace, there's a Chain Analysis, and a couple of other blockchain forensics tools. Yeah. So, blockchain forensics, that's a, we use a Cypher Trace, we use Blockchain Intelligence Group, uh, we use CoinFirm, there's also Elliptic and Chain Analysis. Trace Labs is a missing persons capture the flag. So, it's all the, it's like crowdsourced OSINT looking for, we're looking and working on real 
missing persons cases. That's what we were talking about when we first started the podcast. Yeah. That that's what I was I was interested in, in hearing more about where you just crowdsource missing person reports. And, yeah. And attack that as a as a group in the yeah. matter of an, of an afternoon. You said like in the matter of a span of eight hours, what was the number that you said that you found? In six hours there was Thousands and thousands of intel reports. I think there was around 150 judges, 800 teams. Um, but yeah, there was probably close to 10,000 pieces of intel. Right. And how many, what, what was the result of that session? So we don't always hear back. So we, okay. yeah, uh, they put together evidence packets and they submitted to law enforcement. So it's usually when they ask for the public's assistance is when we get involved there. Gotcha. But uh, it's great. I can uh, actually introduce if you want to join it. We'll be having <laughs> hopefully a Nova Scotia team soon. Yeah, right on. Yeah, we, we'd be certainly interested in hearing about that. We can reach out to our network and see if there's anyone that uh, that also wants to participate in that. Because that's certainly... Also put it out in the show description. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, just the more the merrier, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean... 150 judges. I mean, that's pretty insane. That's a lot of people struggling to, you know, you have to validate the submissions. Right. So, you know, this is their social media profile, their Facebook, this is their Twitter, this is their Instagram. Then you can go through and find out their family, their friends, uh, keep on going through it. Uh, you must have seen last online. You ever see that on websites? No, it, they were last oh, online yeah, yeah, at yeah. this time. Right. Well, that's even more points because you know you're looking for their last online date. What if it's after they went missing? Oh, interesting. Right, because then someone would have opened their phone, and then that means that you can look at their IP address at the time that they came online. Yep. And then that IP address is essentially the location of where their phone is doesn't necessarily mean where that person is hmm. but you can track that's really interesting yeah there's a lot of different ways you can do that um, that's really cool yeah so that's one of the parts of the things you're looking for and, and this is this is people in real time looking for missing persons yep. using technology mm -hmm. That's modern mo that's modern day superheroism yeah <laughs> yeah i see some of them they come up with some pretty crafty things like even social media if you get a like twitter if you get a time and you get a general location then you can get all the you can graph that out and actually get the gps coordinates from the pictures kind of map it out Nifty. Yeah, it, it's pretty cool. I'm just having like a macro thought here. It's like human trafficking and, and child exploitation has probably been happening for thousands of years, right? We can almost say for certain that. Yeah. But like it's only now that we have the tools. So like there's one side of the debates like, oh, digital society is kind of like degrading us. But on the other hand, it's actually giving us the ability and the tools to solve some of the world's biggest problems that just straight up weren't able to be solved. Like I'm thinking like 1940. How would you even approach this problem? Mm. You know yeah, I mean? like a lot of it happens, you know, it happens at home. It can happen at school. It can happen, you go to the mall. I mean, they're getting pretty gutsy. I remember hearing about one, they actually went and tried to grab the kid directly from the mother. 
Wow. And it's like, that's pretty gutsy. Right. Yeah. So. Where was that? Oh, there's tons in the U.S. Uh, even in Fresno. So there's 100 percent. Yeah. Okay. So 100% of 16-year-old girls have been approached by a trafficker. In Fresno. Fresno. And it's like, okay, so that, that's a good number. So 100%, that means everybody. Right. So there's a problem here. Right. And every female, like not every, every 16 year old female. That was in the news article. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's so, insane. You know, some places are worse than others, but, you know, you get the general picture when, you, you know, everybody has the problem. I mean, if you're looking at statistics here in Canada, it's you're looking at about 1% of the actual issue because they're not going to report or do statistics on stuff that they don't know. Right. So it's about 1%. So we're, we're the worst province in Canada, Nova Scotia. For Nova human trafficking. Yeah, exactly. And Nova Scotia is also considered a source province, which means that they're recruiting them and grooming them from Nova Scotia and taking them all across Canada. If there's just so much lack of awareness in Nova Scotia about this. And is it because it's a port city or a port? No, it's just because it's small. I mean, it's friendly. People trust each other. It's not even that they're taking them to other countries. It's that they're taking them out west, from central to west. Uh, I w- so, wow. I do not know what to say. Yeah, it's just, I mean... We got less the population in Nova Scotia than is in Toronto. But it's people from Nova Scotia or is it people that are being traveled from overseas? No, they take them from majority Nova Scotia. Probably like a slight 10-15% might be from overseas, but majority are actually from Canada. You know, if you go into some other countries, then there's a large part of the population being you know, trafficked outside of their country. But Canada, it's mostly locals. That is, oh gosh, that's kind of hard to swallow. Um, And like coming to talk about the, besides the forensic software, are there any other software that also helps determine the location? Well, actually, I think we already talked about it, but um, like there's two aspects to this. Again, there's the money, because they have to get paid for this. Uh, so tracing the money is one solution to or at least one thread in finding the spider them in the spider web and the other one is social media like Mm -hmm. has there any have you ever come across anyone who is completely off the grid when it comes to being trafficked yeah like a really tough case oh yeah some of them are totally off the grid they will take them they'll bring them to a hotel or whatever keep them at that hotel some hotels are complicit where as that's the reason they purchased the hotel was in order to traffic people out of it. All right. Well, I, I kind of wanted to focus a little bit more on how tracing software works on like, like for example, CypherTrace. Mm-hmm. Um, and you named five others. Do they all do the same thing or do they attribute to different analytics and tools that can be used right. to find um missing person yeah they have a different approach so some of them have a different approach uh let's say coin firm for instance they 
just do risk-based scoring. So you can't really graph it out and trace it and do all that. Cipher trace, you can view the ledger. Uh, you can see the attribution. You can see the clusters associated with that address. Now a cluster would be, let's say if you have one private key and then you have hundreds of public keys. So you can transfer from all those public keys using that one private key. So that's how you can group them together in what we call a cluster. Right. So an exchange will have a cluster, for instance. Uh, some people, when, they're, when they have different wallets they, and they send the change address, you know, the change address where whatever's left over goes into another wallet. So it keeps on changing. Yeah, so those big transactions is actually really useful for you because they might receive 10 bucks here, 10 bucks here, 10 bucks here, but then they might send a $550 transaction and that's when they group all of those $10 transactions together in order to send to another entity. And it's at that point, you know, that all of those $10 addresses were associated with one another. Yep. Because they're all moved at once. Yeah. yeah, that's one way, but right. we were able to actually detect it based on, uh, uh, well, them having the same private key. It's some algorithm that they use in order to be able to group it without having to detect it with a sweep. Okay. You can detect the sweep afterwards, but we don't need it in order to detect it. So that, that doesn't mean that you can associate with uh, two public keys together, like before you know, before they've been grouped together for a single spend, right? Like you, you can't group or, uh, or attribute two public keys together necessarily. Yep. Uh, through what method? Uh, it's the algorithm that they use to detect it. So even... So you, so you don't necessarily know what, what attribution method uh, or algorithm they're using. You just know that, that's, that they're, they're giving you valid information. Yeah, it's just, gotcha. uh, it's just a way that they detect it. I mean, they spend millions of dollars in order to... Develop this stuff. Yeah, develop this. Yeah, yeah right on. Cool. How you doing, Murga? <laughs> You're looking like, wow, okay, what, what next? <laughs> oh, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking that this is, um, the lack of awareness on this subject and um, is, is astounding, especially in Nova Scotia. And, uh, like, I'm really happy that we're talking about it. At the same time, it's kind of grim to be, to be up talking about it, I guess. So um, it's good in a sense, and it's, it's good in another, too, just bringing people more awareness as to what is happening. So like with respect to, again, the transactions, I'm trying to get a like a map or a picture of how that works for someone that doesn't know what blockchain forensics is. And you, you've already said that there's, okay, there's ways to cluster um, some several public addresses if you know that one public address is associated with nefarious activity. I remember that I've, I've seen a graph the one time that we did a demo with, I think it was CypherTrace, and you yeah. can actually see where the money goes from the start of, even if you find that one particular address is in the very, so you can see where some of the money is in that address goes and has been. Can you talk about that, how you can kind of expand and build that trail of money? Yeah, so I mean, once you have a public key, you have... Uh you know, inputs and outputs. So people sending and receiving. So you can visually see all, all the people that ever sent to that. But you see, they're also risk scored based on various factors. If they're trying to do, uh, if you see multiple 
multiple outputs, multiple inputs. That's people trying to kind of kind of hinder the blockchain forensics. So once you see those signs, then it's kind of telltale. But I mean, you're theoretically, once you open up a public key, you'll see all the sent and receive. Each one of those sent and receive are being risk scored. Plus you can see if it's from an exchange or not. It's from the dark web. It's uh, if it's a mixer. So if you're- That's a mixer. So a mixer is trying to kind of tumble the funds. So they'll send it to a thousand different addresses in order to hide the, mm, the kind source. of hide the source and destination. Right. So, but when you're receiving from a mixer after you went and tumbled that, it's still from a mixer, right? Right. So you know that, well, they're trying to hide <laughs> what they were doing with that funds. Right. So that's another telltale sign, and you instantly assign that a high risk score. So essentially, there's no way of getting around um, uh, fogging up what the money was used for, where it's come from, and where it's going. Right, because you're going to give an even bigger red flag, because even if you don't, if you send money and you don't receive any of those funds, but you receive it from somewhere else, you're still receiving it from a mixer. Right. So it doesn't matter what happened here, just you're right there at the top of the shadiness level. So you're like, uh, some forensic software is able to uh, like anti-mix or unscramble, is that the correct terminology to use? Well, it's detection. So Detection it, that it has been scrambled or? Yes. Okay. And it's because you have to put it in a mixer and it has to come out. So no matter what happens here, you don't know what happened over here, uh, you know, when they're putting it into the mixture, but you know that it came from a mixer. Okay. Th so, that is the essential part of the information. Yeah. Is it like important to get to where it came from before the mixer? Or is that... Um, well, that's just uh, based on risk scoring. Well, why are they right. using a mixer? Right, I, I was just thinking... I, I don't want to do business with them because they're doing something shady, obviously, if they're using a mixer. Right, and, and I, I've heard the argument that peop some people just want their privacy, and so mm. they use the mixer, but then they're ending up... Like, they could be a totally... They're getting tagged. ...legitimate, like, actor. Hey, I'm, I'm buying my, my morning coffee, but I want to buy it with, like... <laughs> with my anonymity in mind and it's like okay like why do you want that privacy is is your question yeah right and like some people just want their privacy but then they're ending up on these lists you just said that they're being tagged you'll get tagged and there's no way around that no nope, no way around that so that kind of leads me into my next next question is like if i'm just just a regular old joe or jane and i've come into possession of bitcoins somehow through whatever means um and sometime in the past they've been used for let's just say terrorist activity and then i put them on an exchange and that that then they're flagged because i could be a terrorist now because i'm holding coins that yep. used it so what is my recourse as like a, a nice person <laughs> to not get my account shut down and not lose my bitcoin and still be able to participate in this this cryptocurrency economy without having my account shut down because i'm now using coins that used to be used either one get it from a trusted source or two mine it okay so a trusted source though so if i bought it from an exchange would that be a trusted source yeah 
Okay, so if it is used for a terrorist activity, somehow makes its way onto an exchange, then it's sold to me and I take it off the exchange. Are those now untainted coins in a sense? Those would be untainted because you're not doing like a direct tra transaction. Okay. Um, you would be able to detect that the person that deposited them on the exchange was a terrorist. But when it goes into a cold wallet, it's mixed with everyone else's. So really, sure. you don't know if that one bitcoin half a bitcoin they they don't have serial numbers right right so the the coins that have been through regulatory compliant exchanges uh, regulatory compliant exchanges are kind of like untainting coin factories right. in a way because they're compliant and exactly that, this is kind of the conversation that Ruga and i had the other night which is that when um no i'm lost i'm losing my train of thought as i'm as i'm speaking here it's uh it was just about if regulation can then uh, prevent regular people from using bitcoin is uh, that where you were getting no it, okay this was it it was subjective but the regulatory the regulations imposed on an exchange are subject subjective right so the regulations for um exchanges operating in the united states is different than the exchanges uh, right in I, Singapore. Yeah, I know what we were saying so for example cannabis is legal in canada cannabis is legal in some parts of the states but not in others or it's not legal in india for example so if uh bitcoin was used for whatever reason to actually not whatever reason there there's like reason that some to buy cannabis to buy cannabis and bitcoin can be used as a money for example uh by a distillery in wyoming um, or, or Colorado. Colorado is the better one. I'm not yeah, sure. So is cannabis it, are is they cannabis. federally tainted, but on a state level untainted? And then also like if so, whoever received the Bitcoin to sell cannabis to whoever, and if they travel to India or another jurisdiction where it's illegal to have possession of cannabis, then like the Bitcoin that was used uh, that they now received for selling cannabis, like what happens to that? Because is the taintedness of Bitcoin jurisdictional? Yeah, that's uh, when you get into the gray area. It all depends <laughs> on if you try to then transact with a Bitcoin exchange in India, which is compliant, and they report to you because they detect this. It doesn't matter where in the world you are that you were selling marijuana, even though it was in a legal place. I mean, you're going to have to defend yourself. Yeah, well, India is currently in a, as we speak, they are going um, on the, uh, the They're currently the on the flop of the flip-flop side of... There, thanks. Yeah, banning crypto. They, they have banned it, and then they unbanned it, I think, three times now. They've been on either side. I know in 2017, they straight up banned it. I think it. it was three times, but anyway, that's a completely different... Totally. But yeah, I guess it's a gray area. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you don't really know what will happen because you know right yeah i guess you have to stand up for yourself in that I case mean, they would have to have a case against you in order to even right. bring that up right but they can still freeze your funds that's a really good reason not to use exchanges oh, yeah. that are yeah. maybe yeah, outside exactly. of your jurisdiction and that that's why there's you'll see some in cyprus or singapore or panama because they don't really comply with all the laws Right. Well, kind of. I had a question about the whole compliance thing then, because some of my some people that I know in India, uh, they possess Bitcoin, and if it's not on an exchange, but they bought it on an Indian exchange and then they moved it to their wallet, how can regulation or regulatory authorities 
come to them and say, hey, we, we want you to give up your Bitcoin. Like, can't anyone just say, well, it's in my cold... It, it was in my cold storage, but I forgot how to access it. So I don't have access to my Bitcoin. Yeah, or you can say I sent it to someone else. That's true, too. I mean, that's what you're going to have to do because, I mean, they can put you in jail if you don't give the keys. Right. Well, like, can they, though? Because, you know, how can they know whether or not you've actually forgotten the, the not forgotten, but like you lost access to your keys? They don't. Right. They don't really know. Once it's off an exchange and it's in a wallet where only you have access to the private keys, there's no way for them to know. You send it to another one that's not an exchange, just a general wallet address that you generated. Right. There's no way for them to know. Exactly. And that's how you kind of, you know, you don't need to be regulated or compliant. But if you start sending that to the dark web and they trace it back to the exchange and they submit the KYC and they right. say, well, it's likely they might be, but right. they're not 100% sure. But then there's lie detector tests. And, <laughs> you know, there's human rights. That's yeah. true. I doubt India's going to put a budget towards lie detection yeah. for um, anyone who has uh, not given up their Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. That'd be funny. Keegan, you were looking at the computer. Is everything okay? Uh, it's just doing a little boop-boop. And uh, I know what that is, and I'm not going to answer it. It's a notification, but I, I turn my notifications off for the podcast. Okay, cool. So I, was just, just, I was just making sure that the, the podcast is still recording. The podcast is still recording. <laughs> okay, we're still live. Okay, good. This is the most uninteresting part of the conversation. Okay. <laughs> Let's get back into the... Can edit that out. <laughs> uh, no, this is uh, a censorship resistant. Wait. What? Immutable. This is an immutable podcast. We That's don't right. cut anything out. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, Larry, why do you do what you do? Someone needs to do it. I mean, there's uh, even law enforcement. They don't have the tools. Um, there, there was a case one time where, you know, I did the forensics. Two days later, their door got booted down. Ended up getting booted down by someone who I worked with um one of my jobs and i was really proud of that guy but uh you know after again talking with him it can take you know two years for a law enforcement investigation and nothing happened so it, it took me and that report in order to get it booted down so prior to that, I kind of ignored, I, I didn't really want to hear about the problem because it kind of gave me anxiety. But once you start learning how big the problem really is and that you can do something about it, uh, I mean, sometimes we do investigations in bulk and we get, you know, three figures arrested. Right. You know, that's what would happen if I didn't investigate that. There wouldn't be anybody arrested could be two years for those 100 people. So you're talking about 200 years. Right. When, you know, it just takes, could be an hour in order to get all that data and overlap with other data and find out identities. So. Right. And then you have to report them to law enforcement. Then you have to get a lot of doors booted down. But it's a lot more efficient when you know what you're looking for. I mean, law enforcement, they're reactive. They're not proactive. Right. So if they're only reacting to this, then, you know, do you think the problem's going to get any better? So you, your job is to be proactive. 
proactive. I mean, our high-risk trafficking data set has uh, over a million rows of data from over 120 countries. So right. I remember you said that it'd be quicker to mention the places where this isn't happening than to to tell you the places yeah. that it is. And there's none. <laughs> there, I just told you. <laughs> it's happening everywhere. Yeah, it's happening everywhere in every country, in every state, in every province, and every city. You know, there's not a place in the world this isn't happening. Right. That's actually really profound. Because I can't think of many things that share that commonality like food markets it's like the only thing i can think of off the top of my head that has, yeah. shares that in common with with human trafficking yeah food exactly yeah. food <laughs> food in general you got food you got trafficking oh god yeah. so it's, it's that bad and i mean once i mean last year i trained law enforcement from over 25 countries and you know it just gives them um a better hand in tackling these crimes. Otherwise, just going to keep on getting worse. Right. And it is getting worse. It is getting uh, worse. That, that's actually really interesting to think about as well, because like earlier I, I mentioned that, okay, 1940, this problem is insurmountable. You can't even really detect anyone. How big was, was the problem bigger then? It's hard to know that. But you, now you can actually tell that at least like from the data sets that you're dealing with, the data sets themselves are growing. Therefore, you're making the the leap that um, that the problem itself, yes, the podcast is still rolling. It, <laughs> you're making the leap that the uh, that the problem itself is growing. Yeah, right. and that's more because uh, you'll notice that there's more arrests. That's because there's more awareness, right. more people looking into it, more people protesting. And you got these crazy people on social media where, you know, it's not a conspiracy. It's happening happening everywhere right wow amazing yeah i'm i'm a little i'm like pleasantly stunned because now i'm aware of more things that i i wasn't aware of and and stunned because it happens and uh and kind of you know happy that there are people like you and softwares that allow that job to be done much more efficiently than mm -hmm. before we even enrich our data into software in order to allow other agencies to use it and graph it out and you know do lookups on it right so would you say that the data sets that you generate and gather are fairly um like openly shared or are there silos with that as well no, there's silos i mean you have to, uh, we give it to financial institutions to right. scrub their customer base. We give it to law enforcement and we give it to blockchain uh, exchanges right. in order to scrub their customer base. Right. Okay. Well, for the last part of this podcast, I kind of wanted to talk about something completely different, um, but still relevant. And that is the money laundering practices that take place in known banks. So we briefly mentioned this much earlier today, and I know there's a documentary on Netflix uh, about this, but HSBC has been known to be, I, according to what I know, the yeah, yeah, biggest totally bank involved in mm -hmm. money laundering, but there's still a you know upstanding bank. What other banks have you heard of that are responsible for enabling money laundering? All of them. <laughs> so, All I them? mean... 
Yeah, I mean, you can't really, you know, point a finger at one or the other. I mean, they're all, they all have compliance departments. Some of them do more than the others. See, they're not really incentivized in order to prevent this. I mean, it... They make more money if they don't. They make more money if they don't. So it's essentially every bank has some part in it. Uh, Some, they just, uh, the stuff they overlooked, it gets looked at by, you know, different bodies. And that's when you have, you know, nine figure fines or you have reputational damage. It doesn't seem like the reputational damage does anything, though. Right. Yeah, this information kind of gets buried. Yeah. Like, even when you're you're bringing it up, like, you were saying, oh, these banks, I think it's HSBC, and, like, this is just what I heard. But, like, it's, like, totally out of the box that this is, like, a, a cold, hard fact that it's HSBC it's... was laundering money for the Mexican drug cartels. Sometimes they put that money aside yeah. because they know they'll have to pay. Oh, it. that's an insurance fund. Yeah. Right. So I mean, they it won't affect their bottom line. They'll make more money. Cost of doing business. Yeah, that's is there what they insurance? say. Is there insurance for? Oh I, no, I was saying, I throwing that word around like kind of fishy, facetiously. Yeah. Well, they can they can have insurance for that, but I mean, their premiums are going to go up. <laughs> I mean, who wants to have a hundred, two hundred million dollar fine? I mean, imagine the premium after that. I was accidentally laundering money. Sorry about that. Yeah. I oh mean, some banks, it, it comes out of their bottom line. Um, you know, they, they might not have insurance. They might just pay the fine out of their fund. Wow. I, I can't. I'm still trying to process how um, easily you said all of them. Well, I'm just trying to think of some that don't. Well, <laughs> and even then, how could you prove it? That's true too. Oh, the amount of trust that is um, kind of sewed into society for how much to trust banks is incredible. Because Bitcoin is blamed so easily for money laundering, but banks aren't. Cash isn't. It's just kind of, Mm. I've been here for longer, I guess. So it. Oh, and even Bitcoin, uh, it's only a fraction of what the fiat or currency money laundering is. Small fraction. Okay. Because look at the market caps. Right. What's the market cap of cash? (laughs) Trillions. Trillions and trillions and trillions. (laughs) So Bitcoin just passed one trillion recently. Yeah. So it just doesn't even have the same kind of potential to be on the scale of of cash and the operations that are are done with cash. It's like a big dog and a little kitty cat. (laughs) And the big dog is cash. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. That is incredible. And even if, and even when, actually, I shouldn't say if, uh, because I believe this, even when the market capitalization of Bitcoin goes to 2 trillion or 3 trillion, it's still going to be better to quote unquote launder money on the Bitcoin blockchain than in cash because then you have forensic software to catch the It's better for Larry. It's not better for the people doing it. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm I just mean, saying, like, if you do it right, I mean, you can avoid that, but. I mean, eventually you're going to slip up or someone else is going to slip up. Right. You can't have everything be perfect. Yep. 
Insane. So, you know, just to reiterate so that <laughs> we, we have this again, Bitcoin is a fraction of the amount of money used to launder money. Yeah. The biggest factor is cash or yeah. the biggest medium to launder yeah. money is cash. Some people do diamonds, gold, silver, art. coffee. Art, art is coffee a big is one now. Uh, friggin' uh, selling homes and everything. Oh, wait, what's that? Homes, like Real houses, estate. real estate. Real oh, estate. Home. wait, what? Yeah, home think about it. Laundry money? What do you? Why do you think that there's a big old housing bubble here in Halifax? Right now? Yeah. Wait, it's to launder money? Oh yeah, a lot of well, a lot of people they they buy property. In order to launder money. So, but you'd have think to pay about with this cash, way, Maria. Right? Think about it this way: I'll I'll buy a house. It's worth two hundred thousand dollars. Now, I'll sell you the house for three hundred thousand dollars, and that hundred thousand dollar difference is what you paid me to give you a human. What? Right. Right. So you buy the house, and it's completely Wait, in a legitimate no, no, market. No, I I didn't actually get that transaction. Well, the difference in the so, price. Uh, out right. in BC, there's a lot of stuff going on with. Uh, they just actually created a new uh, department under law enforcement in order to tackle all the laundering through buying real estate in BC right now. There's a there's a new department that's come up to yeah. detect money laundering through buying houses. Yeah. Wait. So how how does that equate to getting a human in exchange? Yeah, because the difference in price um, is is what the human costs. Right, so I'm not actually selling you a house. You're not actually buying a three hundred thousand dollar house. You're buying the two hundred thousand dollar house that I just bought for two hundred thousand. Oh. The hundred thousand extra dollars is what you paid for the human, right? Oh, that's making me sick. Right, but yeah. I mean, some people. I mean, there's, you know, you're you're paying a few hundred bucks in some countries. Oh my gosh! You see the organ price lists. Oh, the organ what? harvesting. Oh, I, I was on a presentation the other day and uh, they actually had one of them. I'm just looking at this. I'm like, oh. you know, cartilage. They'll do livers, kidneys, hearts, eyeballs, like corneas. And, oh. Oh yeah, just Google it. No, thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll pass on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so all of the... Parts of the re part of the reason why um, I was gonna say human laundering. That's <laughs> <laughs> a, a new joke. one. That is not not a good joke. Um, man, what am I getting at? Is is not simply for transporting humans. Human trafficking is not simply for transporting humans. It's for harvesting organs. Yes, because there's uh, sex trafficking. There's labor trafficking. There's organ trafficking. Oh my god! A bunch of different types of trafficking. And the umbrella is human trafficking. Yeah. So yeah, the umbrella is human. And the and the medium of exchange, the medium of making that transaction possible, is mostly cash. Yep, cash. Um, could be Bitcoin. It don't matter. Could be gold. It could be food. Could be. You know, somebody getting a few bucks for their kid. Literally, that's, you know, what it's like over in some countries. You're like getting 20 bucks. They'll give their kid away. Arranged marriages. 
That uh, happens a lot in India. Yeah, but there's some that are underage. That also happens a lot in India. Yeah, so that's should be illegal. It is, but culture. Yeah. Crazy. Oh my gosh. All right, and and if it's if the transaction is made on the Bitcoin blockchain, it's fairly easy to track and trace because it's a public ledger. Yeah, we do a lot of a lot of tracing of it uh, for like child videos, for instance. So that's the majority of the blockchain stuff that we'll get is relating to children and that. Wow. But then once you have a buyer who's getting a seller, then you pivot on that seller, look at the same transaction amount, mm -hmm. and boom, you have more buyers. And then you pivot on them to see if they have, you can find more sellers. Right. But even then you need proof. That's why we use the dark web because... A lot of people don't realize, you know, just people like me that archive the dark web so we can get history. Right. So I can look up a crypto address and say, oh, this crypto address is on 20 dark websites. So what are all these dark websites? So oh, they're all the same thing. Oh, obviously. Then you can get the text in the website and say, oh, purchase it for 0 0.0003 BTC. Okay, so you have that amount. Right. So that's when you cross-reference the blockchain. Right. Because you already have the address. You found that that address is found on that page. Right. So that's how it's easy. You can use artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, in order to do this automatically for you. Right. It's one of the easiest ways. Whew. Oh, my gosh. Larry, thank you for... Yeah. So openly sharing this information with us. I, I don't know why I said openly, because this is something that needs to be shared and known by people around the world, hopefully to prevent it from happening. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you can tell our audience that can be more preventative? Keep an eye out. I mean, you know, make yourself aware. Uh, it could probably, you know, benefit everyone the most if you focus local in the area that you are um, just because, you know, a lot of people are going crazy over Epstein and all this stuff, but you know what, you're not going to do anything right. about that, that. You're not helping anything, right. you know, focus more at home locally. If everybody did this globally and cut the problem in half in a year, I don't see any, you know, just more awareness and yeah. keeping an eye out. Yeah. Start locally. And then, Make the difference there first. Amazing. Larry, thank you so much for being on our show. And uh, this is incredible. Thank you. Where can people find you and reach you? And uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> when I said find you. If <laughs> What's your address? <laughs> uh, email me, Larry, at uh, followmoneyfightslavery.org or reach out to me on LinkedIn. And that's at Larry Cameron. We'll have his coordinates to his media. <laughs> his coordinates, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just on how to reach him in the show notes as well. So if you wanted to send him an email, maybe join some of the things that Larry's supporting, be part of the um, the Capture the Flag event right. that you talked about earlier. Right, from what I understand, you're always looking flag. to recruit curious individuals on, on how they can perform all of these analyses and uh, and help fight against this this thing that you've just described to us in the past hour yep and we have training too 
So we'll be putting together some little capture the flag groups. And what, what should people know if they want to get involved? Like what should they, like, is there a base layer of knowledge that need, they need to come to you with and before you say, can you Google? Can you Google? That's what open source intelligence starts with. That's wicked. Everyone yeah. can do that. Yeah. <laughs> My mom does it, does it expertly now. Yeah, everyone yeah. can Google. Everyone For sure, we'll get, get your mom involved. Yeah. She'll love it. Hi, mom. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much once again. And everyone for watching and listening. Thank you. You know where to reach Larry and stay tuned. <laughs>